Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Cara tonight. And our topic is saving the tree of life. I hope to explain this as we go along. But basically what I'm thinking about is what the Lord did. We're coming up on Easter time. And I'm thinking about what the Lord did when he came into this world and what the nature of his salvation was. The crux of this is that there are some passages that say that when the Lord came into the world, he saved many. And there are other passages that say that he saved everyone. He saved the world. So that seems like two different things. You know, like many would be, you know, like quite a fair portion of the human race. And, but the whole human race, you know, what? So how, how do we put those things together? That's been a little conundrum I've been puzzling over for a while. And I think I have something to say about it tonight. So do tune in and find out. Be exciting. Let's open with a prayer, shall we, friends? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, thank you for bringing us together in your name. Thank you for bowing the heavens and coming down. You are the Word made flesh. We pray for insight, Lord, into the nature of your coming into this world, your life, your death, and your resurrection. Amen. Great pleasure to be with you all, sending out love to those of you online and getting the audio. And saving the tree of life. What do I, what do I mean by that? Um, thinking about the human race, and I'll try to explain a little later why I would refer to the human race as the tree of life. Um, let's jump into some all versus many sort of passages, shall we? We're just diving in. There's all sorts of issues in these. But let's start in the middle of your Bible, more or less, in Isaiah. Chapter 53 has long caught the attention. It's in the Old Testament, but it's long caught the attention of Christian readers because it seems so pointedly about the crucifixion. Uh, it's about the Lord being despised and rejected and, and he was wounded for our transgressions and so on. It, it, he was oppressed and afflicted, but he didn't open his mouth. And it's been read as being about the crucifixion. Uh, let's uh, look at verse 9 there in 53. And there's loaded issues. Some people have argued that this is about a trinity of persons. I did a Bible study a while ago on the first verse of 53. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Uh, Jesus is the arm, arm of Jehovah. You know, it's not, it's not two separate people, but it sounds like that in here sometimes. Let's start at verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So this is a, you know, read by Christians as a picture of Jesus' innocence in the crucifixion, and yet he had criminals right next to him and so on. Go on. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, there's lots of things in there. It sounds very much like there's a trinity of persons in this passage, and that the Lord was pleased to brute, which is creates kind of an awful picture of God that he was happy about Jesus' crucifixion or something uh, and that he put him to grief. 
We've done many Bible studies arguing against that particular reading. Uh, I, I want you to notice it talks about an offering for sin, and this is one of the crucial things. What was Easter all about? Was Je did Jesus die on the cross? What effect did that have on our sins? In what way did that save? What sort of salvation did that provide? And uh, I want you to think about that word seed because we'll getting, be getting back to that in a little bit. Let's have a look at verse 11. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Okay, now so he'll justify many. That'll make them righteous. Uh, but it didn't say all. It just said many. Uh, so this will affect many. Let's look at that last verse 12 there. Therefore, therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, 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 hmm. and made intercession for the transgressors. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't say he bore the sin of everyone, but maybe many just means you know that there was a lot or something, but it's not quite the same as all. Uh, he was numbered with transgressors. You know, he was literally right up there next to the criminals. Uh, it, just a tiny little point for the real theological maniacs out there, of which I know there are many. Um, when it says he poured out his soul to death, this is the passage from which the whole idea of exodination comes. It's an emptying out. Uh, when this is rendered in Latin Bibles, it uses something about emptying out there, that he poured out his soul unto death, was numbered with the transgressors. So you heard the word many in there. There there's all sorts of theological issues in that passage, but I mainly read it tonight to show you that it talked about many, but not all. So, okay, that, that launches us off. Let's turn into the New Testament to Gospel of Matthew. First Gospel there. Let's go for Matthew chapter 20. Hmm. Yeah, the language of Scripture is really something, isn't it? Okay. Um, oh, there were, you know, disciples wanted to be great and wanted to sit by Jesus' side on the right hand and the left. And look at verse 25 there. Let's start there. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Many. To give his life a ransom for many, again, this feeds into that idea that you get from Isaiah 53, that there was some kind of sacrifice going on. Uh, what is this ransom? And it's a ransom for many. Does that mean it's not a ransom for all? Why didn't it say all? It just said for many. Does it just mean that those who believe will be saved, but others are not? And uh, so... Let's look at Luke. So turn to the right through Mark and get to Luke chapter 2. 
a famous statement in the Christmas story. Let's start at verse 9 there, just to mix it up at Easter time. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Oh, this is all people. All people. So all, so the ransom is just going to be for many. He's going to justify many, but the good news will be for all people. Okay, all right, interesting. Look at Luke chapter 3. Uh, let's start at verse 2 there. Got some good names. Well, Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, saying... Hmm, so now they're going to quote Isaiah from the Old Testament, okay? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Oh, that's not just many, not just justifying many. All flesh, what does that mean to see? All flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, interestingly, this is a quote from Isaiah but Isaiah doesn't have exactly that same wording in that, like, that's a little bit different, that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And I want to point something out in verse 3 there, that when John comes preaching a baptism for the repentance, repentance for the remission of sins, why would he do that if Jesus is going to be a ransom for sins and that'll just take care of it? Like, why would you have to go through repentance if Jesus' death on the cross is just going to take care of it. It doesn't quite make sense. And then he says, mm -hmm. all flesh shall see the salvation of God. All right. The plot thickens as it ever does in Scripture. Turn to the right and go to the Gospel of John. Let's look for chapter 12. And... Oh, let's start at... Oh, here's, here's good. This is good. All right. Let's start at verse 44 there. 44. In John 12, toward the end. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Now, see, that kind of goes against the idea from Isaiah 53 that there's two separate people. There's sort of Jehovah or, or the Lord, uh, and then there's Jesus, and they were separate. Jesus is saying, if you believe in me, you already believe in the one who sent me. Go on. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. Now, the only way that works, in my mind, is that Jesus is the embodiment. You know, he is the embodiment of the one only God. Otherwise, how could you say seeing him means you've seen God? How, how could that be the case? Go on. I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And listen to this. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe... I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. To save the world. The world. 
I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save the world. It doesn't just say many, some, or something like that. These are good tidings that will be to all people, and he came to save the world. So you see what I'm driving at? That there's it seems like a sort of a tension between, well, is it many, or is it the whole world, and how do you save the whole world, the whole world, if you're just going to save the world and everybody's going to be saved, why do you need to tell them to repent? A um, little bit of a mystery there. Okay, let's turn to the right and go into Acts. Let's go to Acts chapter 13. Let's look at verse 47 there. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Okay, that's pretty sweeping. Salvation to the ends of the earth. Uh, it's not sort of like a selective elite group is going to get it. You know, it's salvation to the ends of the earth. All right, uh, let's hold that in mind. Let's go to... The next epistle is Romans. Paul's epistle to the Romans. Let's go to chapter 5. Mm. Okay, now this is talking about how Adam, uh, in this idea is that Adam was the source of this sin that came into the world, and then Jesus was the source of fixing it. And look at how Paul words this here in verse 18. Therefore, as... As through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Uh-oh. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in, resulting in justification of life. Now that sounds a little more blanket than saying many. It's coming to all, you know... What Adam did affected the whole human race. What Jesus did affected the, you know, undid that and affected the whole human race. And he spells it out a little more in verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Many, okay. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Okay, so verse 19 is sort of a many verse and verse 18 is sort of an all verse. So... <laughs> Which side of the equation would you put that one on? It's kind of got a little bit of both in there. But obviously the contrast is between one person and many, one and many. Again, I'd love to dig into Adam and did he sin and what, what happened to the human race. We've dealt with that in some other Bible studies, but we shall move on. Uh, oh boy, this is fun. Let's go to, okay, we're going for First Timothy. Do you know where that is? shortly before the Hebrews there. So you go through some Galatians and Ephesians, things like that. You start to get to things that start with a T, Thessalonians, and then First and Second Timothy, and then Titus. I want to go to First Timothy chapter 2. Mm. Let's read those first four verses there. Oh, no, six probably. Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. All men. Okay. Sweeping. That's good. For kings and all who are in authority, 
that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, mm -hmm. who desires all men to be saved. Oh, so he desires all men. So it's not selective. I mean, certainly his will is that all people would be saved. Okay. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the, tr of the truth. Yeah, and I'm very interested. You would think you would need to come to the knowledge of the truth and then be saved. The sequence in Scripture is sometimes fascinating. It says you're saved and then you come to the knowledge of the truth. It's just interesting that it goes the other way around. And go on. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And what did he do? Who gave himself a ransom for all. Oh, to be testified in due time. Now, wait a minute. Matthew 20 said that he gave his life as a ransom for many. But here it says, gave himself a ransom for all. That's what I'm talking about. You know what I mean? That's what I'm talking about. What, what is that distinction there? Why sometimes many, sometimes all? What's going on? All right, look at 1 Timothy 4. That is just magnificent. Uh, look at verse 10. In for, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Okay. <laughs> for to this end we both labor and suffer reproach. Why is that? Because we trust in the living God. Oh, and who is that? Who is the Savior of all men. Oh, he's the Savior of all men. It's very clear. He's the Savior of all men. <laughs> Especially of those who believe. Oh, no, wait. You can't have an especially in there. How did you get an especially clause in there? Are there two tiers of salvation? There's sort of the everyone salvation plan, which is sort of the scrape-in sort of thing. And then you've got the special group who believe. What is, read that again. What is that? For this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men. He's the Savior of all men. I mean, it's very clear. It says it right there. He's the Savior of all men, all human beings. Especially of those who believe. Especially. You can't have it. Are you allowed to do that, Paul? Are you allowed to say that? Especially of those. No. What is going on there? The Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. I like the next verse. These things command and teach. Well, it sounds wonderful. If I could understand what you were saying, I would be happy to try to teach it. The, um, let's uh, <laughs> look at Hebrews. Uh, couldn't there have been some easier text to work with? I don't know. Hebrews, so turn to the right and get to Hebrews chapter 5. And uh, we'll just jump in, but then verse 8 and 9 there. Okay. Though he was a son, this is about Jesus. Yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Mm. And having been perfected, he perfected. Yes, so he wasn't necessarily perfect all through and through to begin with, but he was perfected. And what happened? Having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Oh, well, I thought the all was the special subgroup in the last statement. Uh, so the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. So, so what is, 
what is going on here? How could you say, in what sense is it many and what sense is it all? So what I think is going on here is that there, the word salvation and talking about saving is being used in two different ways. And in one way of using it, all is the appropriate term. And in the other way of using it, many is the appropriate term. They are both true because salvation means a couple of different things. And uh, specifically, when salvation is talking about the salvation, the taking to heaven of an individual soul, a human being, uh, that's a many situation. Otherwise, it makes no sense to me why you'd have to preach repentance. In other words, not everybody makes that. That's why it says to all those who believe or to all those who obey or all those, you know, that there, there are restrictions on, especially. So that's what the other one that says it to the all, uh, but especially to those who believe. Well, there's two different layers of salvation that we're talking about here. And uh, so there's a salvation, meaning going to heaven, uh, that does not affect the entire human race because of the choices that, that people make and so on. Uh, the, uh, what, so what, what would the other salvation be? In what sense was there a salvation of all? Is it possible, since Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected, is it possible for people to go to hell? Well... I would have to say it is possible for an entire planet to go to hell. Uh, that seems to be aptly demonstrated by what we see around us every day. So it's probably made up of individuals who are in some sense or another going to hell. And it's not that everything's just hell in this world, <laughs> but it does seem like, hmm, it doesn't seem like there's just been nothing but sheer overwhelming salvation in the last 2,000 years of the human race. There's a lot of nasty things going on. There's still a few people breaking the Ten Commandments now and then. There's still some bad things that go on. So, so in what sense did the Lord save the whole human race? Well, uh, Scripture, it was really striking me how much Scripture is about multiplication. Let's do another swing through Scripture. Let's go all the way back to the first book of the Old Testament. Genesis, and look at chapter 1. Verses 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Mm. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Yes. So they are commanded to be fruitful and multiply. Um, this seems to be a very important theme in Scripture. Let's look at some other passages. Uh, go to Genesis 12, right at the beginning there. Now the Lord said to Abram... Okay, Abram. There's this person, Abram, who later gets called Abraham. 
Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. One person. I'll make you a great nation. So there's, again, this idea of multiplying. Abram is going to multiply. There will be more of his descendants. Yep. Uh, I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Mm. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Oh, that's a big, a big statement, to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Um, there's very much of this whole trend in, in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, of multiplication. You start out with a small group, and then it grows and it grows. So you see Abram, and he's very worried about, it seems like he's been promised things, but then he, he, doesn't, have, he doesn't have his own son, like how is this going to continue and so on. That's a concern at a certain point. And look at 13 verse 15. Something the Lord says to Abram. For all the oh, land, let's look at 14. 14 is good. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. Wow. All directions, okay? For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. Mm. Go on. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. The dust. What does that mean? I'll make your descendants as the dust of the earth. That means they'll be incredibly populous, right? They're just un uncountably many. Go on. So that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Abram's hmm. just one person. How, you know, wow, there's going to be this enormous expansion that's going to go on. Uh, look at 15, verse 5. The Lord speaks to Abram again. So that was the dust. He's going to make his offspring like the dust. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Oh, so it was before it was the dust. It was like the dust. Now it's the stars. They'll be like the stars. And we're not talking about the, the stars over Philadelphia today. We're talking about the stars in the wilderness back in the, you know... It, <laughs> You could clearly see the Milky Way. You know, there were just an uncountably many stars. That's how many your descendants are going to be. Okay. Uh, have a look at 22 verse seven, 17. 22 verse 17. The Lord speaking to Abraham again. Okay, 22, 17. This was right after he asked him to sacrifice his son. Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven. There we go with the stars again. And as the sand, which is on the seashore. Oh, the sand. So we had dust, the stars, and the sand. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. Mm, go on. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. There it is again. Because you have obeyed my voice. Mm. See what I mean when, when I mentioned earlier about seed? Is it, we're reading about Abraham's seed. In other words, all these descendants that are going to come, this multiplication. 
there's going to be this great growth, even though it was hard for him to imagine at the time. Look at Genesis 28. Verse 14, uh, let's look at 13 and 14. Oh, let's look at 12, 13, 14. Then he dreamed. This is Jacob's dream. And behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Yes. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. And what will your descendants be like? Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south, and in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And I'm just taking it easy. There are many more passages than this about this in the Old Testament. But you see, it's the, it's the dust, again, the dust, the stars, the sand, there's going to be this tremendous multiplication. Uh, let's look at uh, Deuteronomy. So turn to the right. It's the fifth of the books of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Now this is interesting. Moses stands up and speaks to the children of Israel. Now if you know how the story goes, I should fill in a little bit about what happens in there because, because Jacob... Uh, ends up having 12 sons and a daughter. And uh, they, each of them, so, you know, their wives and so on, they, they multiply, they have many children. And so you see how there's just a few people, there's just Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah and Rachel and so on. And then pretty soon you have a larger family. Uh, they go down to Egypt. There ends up being 70 of them down there. So they've grown from just a few to 70. And uh, then uh, they grow and grow and grow. They multiply a great deal in, um, down in the land of Egypt. And when they come out, there are just hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them. At some point, it gives a figure in the 600,000s, I think, that have developed from these 70 people. You know, it's, 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 it's a huge part of the whole story. And Moses stands up and speaks to the people uh, just before they're going to go into the Holy Land, I believe. Yet they're on this side of the Jordan. And look at 1 verse 10. What does he say? The Lord your God has multiplied you. <clears throat> and here you are today as the stars of heaven in multitude. Oh, this is not a fulfillment of like a long time from now. Already by Deuteronomy chapter 1, he says, Oh, look, it already happened. You're like the stars of heaven. You know, the 600,000 of you used to be just a few. Uh, that, that multiplication seems to be very, very, um, you know, it's a strong theme in Scripture. Look at verse 11. May the Lord God of your fathers mm. make you a thousand times more numerous than you are mm. and bless you as he has promised you. Wow. A thousand times more would be like six billion people, if I do my math correctly. So, so um, yeah, and so there's been this tremendous multiplication. Uh, may, may there be a thousand times as many. Uh, that was the whole point. And so over time, as you watch the story unfold, what was originally just a person named Judah and a person named Levi or whatever, pretty soon... Judah is a whole tribe of people. Levi is a whole tribe of people. 
pretty soon when they settle in the Holy Land, they become an entire region. In fact, Judah keeps sort of spreading in definition and becomes half of the entire Holy Land is, is Judah. And um, so it's, it's very much a picture of all this spreading and multiplication and growth. Okay, um, let's see. Uh, let's go back to Genesis, if you would, to chapter 47 here at the end of Genesis, back to the left. Yeah, there's a little bit of what I was just telling you about. 47, verse 27. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen. And they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. Yes. And look at, just turn to the right a little bit to Exodus chapter 1. And this was when they were, they were having so many babies that the Egyptians were getting nervous about them. And look at 1 verse 20. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. Yeah, they just keep reproducing. There's more and more and more people uh, growing and growing. Uh, let's go into the middle of your Bible to Isaiah. Turn to the right to Jeremiah. I want to go to chapter 33. Now, Jeremiah is one of the prophets after a lot of history has gone down, and he's prophesying about the future. And look at verse 19 there in Jeremiah 33. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that there will not be day and night in their season... Mm. Then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levites, the priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. Okay, so this is looking forward. They're still getting, now we're in the prophets in the Old Testament. You're still getting this idea that there's going to be this multiplication in the future. And I also am really intrigued that it's associated with the Lord's covenant with things that you cannot, you cannot break the Lord's covenant with day and night. No one's ever succeeded in, you know, we might be able to create artificial light or something like that. But if, if, you know, if you can get day and night to stop, then you can break my covenant uh, with the people. But meaning that you can't. You can't. And it's, so it's still making prophecies about the host of heaven and, and, um, and so on, the sand of the sea. It's all going to go forward and multiply exceedingly. Turn to the next book, if you will, to Ezekiel. And I want to go to chapter 36. The, uh, in verse 9 here, oh yes, look, let's look at verse 8. Let's start there, 36 verse 8. But you, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel. Even that's sort of a multiply image to my mind. For they are about to come. For indeed I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. Okay. 
These will, mountains, yep, okay. I will multiply men upon you, mm. all the house of Israel, all of it, and mm. the city shall be inhabited and the ruins rebuilt. Go on. I will multiply upon you man and beast, and they shall increase and bear young. I will make you inhabited as in former times, and do better for you than at your beginnings. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Yeah, that's right. So he's still in the prophets talking about this multiplication, this, this increase is going to go on. Uh, and look in the New Testament, if you will, go through the four Gospels to the book of Acts again. Let's go to Acts chapter 6. There's one little mention in here. Look at 6 verse 7. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multipli multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, mm. and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So even in the New Testament, you have this idea of its growth, multiplying, everything's going forward, and increase. Okay, there's two other things I want to look at, dear, good, and patient friends. Uh, let's go to the left to Matthew chapter 1. We do not have to read all this, although it'll be a fun challenge for our dear reader, but uh, there is a genealogy, is there not? Mm. The beginning of Matthew, and it talks about the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. There's Abraham in there. And then it goes through the genealogy from Abraham, goes all the way down to David. It keeps coming down through the generations. Just, just mostly, there are four female names in here. It's mostly just the male line comes all the way down. And so look at verse 17 there. What does it say at the end of the genealogy? So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Mm, now if I do my math correctly, 14 plus 14 plus 14 is 42. So there are described 42 generations between Abraham and Jesus. And have a look in Luke. So turn to the right, go through Mark to Luke. I want to look at chapter 3, isn't that right? Yeah, 3 in Luke. Luke 3. Because you also have a genealogy in there. Okay. And it starts in verse 23. Uh, and it works backward instead. It's mm -hmm. very intriguing to me that in Matthew you have a forward genealogy that goes through these 42 generations coming down to Jesus. And here you have a backwards one, again, primarily the male line, going back, 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 back. Only this one goes even farther back. It gets all the way back to Abraham. And then in, in verse 34, then it goes even farther back, farther back, farther back. And look at verse 38. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the Son of God. Oh, it goes even farther back. It goes all the way back to Adam, and Adam is the Son of God. So he's, he's descended, in a sense, from God in this genealogy. So you've got a genealogy that goes backwards and a genealogy that goes forward. Now, I want to beg your indulgence, uh, good friends, because I want to wax a little mathematical for a second here. Um, <laughs> It's a weird thing about human beings that every single individual human being is the result of two other human beings. Whether, you know, 
I'm just talking about genetic development or something. It's your result of a male and a female human being of, of some kind or another that resulted in you. So as is well known, every individual somewhere, whether you know them or not, whether whatever, there are two parents, four grandparents, eight great-grandparents, 16 great-greats, 32 great-great-greats. It keeps going back like that. There are more and more and more and more ancestors. It's weird because you would think it would be growing. It would go the other way. But if you had to take a piece of paper, it's very hard to chart these things. I mean, genealogical programs and stuff, it's, it's extremely challenging to represent. The genealogies we just looked at are just one name in each generation. One name, one name, one name, right down. The one name, one name, just the men, right, right the way down. In actuality, you're very quickly related to a lot of, a lot of people. Uh, if you had to draw a box, I want to talk about this carefully if I can, but let's say if you, if you decided, okay, I'm going to take out a piece of paper or a few pieces of paper and just write down, okay, here's a box for, for the name of my father, this is the name of my mother. Okay, and then my father's father and my father's mother and my mother's father and my mother's mother and then you wrote down boxes for all that. How many boxes would you need 42 generations ago? Does anybody know the answer? It's 4.38 trillion. Oh, no. 4.38 trillion people from whom you are descended. Now, I shouldn't say, I misspoke, because there were not, and there have never been on this planet, 4.38 trillion people. But there are 4.38 trillion boxes, and the next generation back, there's going to be 8.8 .8 trillion. Then there's going to be like 17 trillion. And, then, and it, it doubles every generation. This is only 42. This is just Abraham to Jesus. Tr we're talking about trillions of, of boxes on your chart. Now, the thing that, um, how do you reconcile the fact that the entire human race was way, way smaller than 4 trillion? How could you have 4 trillion boxes up there? Well, the secret is you get people to double up. You know, if cousins are second or third or twelve cousins marry, then you've got a whole wedge of the chart going back that's the same as this other part of the wedge. You know, you get more and more names filling in back there that are the same people appearing in different boxes. So it's not true there's 4.38 trillion people, but there are 4.38 trillion roles from which you descend in only 42 generations. It's not that long. And the human race has been around a lot longer than that. There's something kind of dizzying about it. And so if you think about that, like, whoa, you know, all coming down to just little old you, uh, and then you start to think about how little we know. You know, can you name your great-great-great-grandparents or whatever, you know, uh, and, and there are some people who can, but I bet they can only name one. Like, you go back seven generations, you got 128 people, if I'm doing my math right, uh, you might be able to name one of them if you're really extraordinary, you know, like if somebody really studied this and wrote it down. Generally speaking, after three or four, it's like, forget it, you know. Um, so we're descended from a great host of people, each of us, a great host of people. One of the delights of having a new baby is to look in their faces and to see the family, the little part of the family tree that you may know if you're so blessed to, to know some of the people. So you look, oh, look, is this so-and-so's eyes or so-and-so's nose? Or they made an expression for just a second that looked like Uncle So-and-so or something. And uh, that's fun. Uh, 
But all we know is this tiny little, we know this tiny little piece with a few little people that we're basing this on. What if we had awareness of those countless, you know, hundreds of millions and millions of people from whom we're descended? And oh, you're like mainly like these 10,000 people here, you know, and uh, but you have some of the traits of, of the others. Um, <laughs> We really don't know much about what's going on. And isn't it amazing how, have you ever noticed if you've studied families at all, I don't know if you live in a community where you get to do that fairly readily, but, <laughs> but um, if you study families, uh, isn't it fascinating how sometimes this kid of these parents will be so much more like the uncle and aunt than they are like their parents. You, you get them confused in the family because it's like, well, no, you're really one of them, you know. <laughs> or something, the interweaving of this whole thing. So part of what I'm driving at is that the Lord in His omniscience sees that whole thing. And I'm just talking about just like a bloodline, just names. Think of what the Lord knows about how the interweaving of this thing. And isn't it amazing sometimes too, you'll see a certain member of a certain family and when you get down to like the fifth generation, it's like, it's like a homeopathic remedy. It's getting more powerful the more diluted it is. You know, it, it's amazing what is going on. And yet it's been cut with all these other gene lines and it's getting, getting stronger. But that's mainly because you know that line and you can, you can see it. But you can't see what you don't know. And, and what you don't know is 99.9999999999% of the story. It's just the 0.0001% is fascinating to see the, the correlations. Uh, but we're very blind to what's going on. It's a sort of a weird feeling to think that just five generations from now, your grandchildren's grandchildren may not know your name. They may not know a single thing about it. It's just weird. We're, we're very myopic, aren't we? We have this tiny little impression of the human race and, and what's going on. And this is just the most basic information. I'm just talking about a name, you know, just a name or something. Like, who was that? Uh, imagine what the Lord knows in terms of certain traits and characteristics that have come down. And then when this family married this family, then this, these traits came about. And uh, so it was this kind of thing that got me starting to think about the tree of life. You had this amazing tree of life weaving together. Then as we go down from us the other way, so that's the Luke way, as you go up, you know, you get this apparent infinity, even though it's, it's fewer and fewer p people playing all the roles eventually, but uh, there's a staggering number of people in doubles every generation going up. But there's also multiplication going down, and it's kind of amazing to think about, not for everybody all the time and everything, but there's a general, you know, one generation follows the other, and there are more people. It gets so complicated, you just can't fit it on a chart. There's no way to chart it. Even the basics, you can't chart it. It gets too complicated in a big hurry. If you did all the siblings and then the parents' siblings and then all their in-laws and all their families, you know what I mean? It doesn't take long to run out of paper, and the whole world doesn't have enough paper to, to describe it. And to think of it multiplying, and this is the whole direction the Scripture is talking about, multiplying, that you just start out with, you know, a couple of people, and then, boom, there's another, and now there's 12 sons, and they marry, and then they have kids, and pretty soon, their tribes, 
pretty soon there are whole regions of the world and there's just this growth, this endless growth going forward. I had the opportunity a little while ago to see a photograph of, um, forget, I think it was six sisters who lived around here and it was so amazing. I know their families and that what's come down and each one of those faces has a whole family that goes with it. It's amazing to see how just those, you know, like, wow. And most of the time, you know, we don't, we don't see this, but there's amazing things going on that the Lord sees in terms of the multiplication of the human race. So it's as if we are this vast, I got this mental image of this tree of life, just this vastly complex, almost infinite, it's not infinite, but just so expansive that we can't record it, we don't know it, there's no way to track it. Uh, the interweaving of everything in the human race and how it grows over time and enlarges. I mean, just in my lifetime, I wanted to get the stats, I forgot to get them, but I think it was something like the human race passed 2 billion when I was younger, and then another 15 years later passed 3 billion, then 4, and then 5, and then 6, and then so We're living in a time of just enormous, I mean, it's amazing, you know, like doubling of the human race, and uh, there's just this huge expansion going on. It's just an amazing thing to think about. So, what I'm driving at here, good friends, is that the Lord saved that thing, saving the tree of life. One of the things that he did, when it says that he saved all, when it says that he saved the world, what it's talking about is that he kept the human race going. If he had not come into this world... All hell would have broken loose, you know, not just metaphorically or something. Uh, when you think about even with the, the, the word and the Lord and the rule of law and everything like that, the amount of killing we managed to do to each other, even with all those nice restraints in place, is quite epic. Uh, imagine if you turned the lights out. You know, what does the human race look like if there's no presence of heaven with it? How long does it take the human race to kill each other and wipe each other out and the last few people starve out in the woods somewhere or something? That's what the Lord was looking at. Total destruction. That's why he came into the world. So one purpose, he loves that tree. He's doing this amazing project. And when you think about it, it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous program because of the absurd divine love that's driving it. It's just crazy. But to have every one of those things be eternal beings that's still up in heaven, is still growing and developing and everything, it uh, just blows your mind to think about what's going on and all the interrelations between people and everything. The Lord wanted to, the, part of the purpose of the Lord's coming in this world. Yes, He cared a lot about our individual salvation. And He came into this world to try to provide for our individual salvation so that we could go to heaven. So he taught about repentance, he gave us teachings, he gave us the word, and, and said, you know, if you believe in me, if you live a good life, he'll render to everyone according to their works, and so on, that he is, as Hebrews says, he's able to save to the uttermost uh, those who come to him. Uh, he, he gained the ability to save individuals. That's what the many is about, to my mind, that he justified many especially those who believe, you know, that they, they got the full salvation package, which is that they get to go to heaven. But what is the all 
the all is about, at some point, I think it comes down to something as basic as the sheer continuance of the human race. Just the fact that there's going to be another generation coming, you know? The fact there's going to be more people in the world. Because that whole thing, how sad would it be when you picture it just like there's not a soul on this planet. It just goes spinning around. Might be some animals or something. There's just like the whole human race. I know some of you think that's a delicious idea, and I, I get where you're coming from. But, but uh, to me, it's also very sad that there, there would be no growth, no continuance. Every family line is cut off. It's like that tree is just boom, turned into a stump. You know, you don't, you don't continue it at all. The Lord, the whole thing, his goal is a salvation, a heaven from the human race. That's what he wants to do. So his love is for the salvation of the whole human race. And that means two different things. That means saving individuals and bringing them to heaven who, who want to be brought to a heaven and who respond to the Lord. But it also means just keeping the party going, you know, keeping us from killing each other wiping ourselves out, you know, uh, keeping the lights on, keeping the thing going on. So as much mayhem as there is in our world, and there's a lot, I think, uh, the Lord is smiling. He's happy. He got 2,000 years and more people that he earned because the would have been nothing. Uh, another little element that might be stretching credulity, friends, but Swedenborg talks about life on other planets. This is just one planet. There was all, but everything was going to go down. Uh, you know, everything would have been lost, uh, much more than just this little planet. Uh, you would have to a total destruction, like shut down the entire operation. You know, the Lord, the Lord wasn't going to let that happen. So the sense in which He saved the world was that He kept the human thing going. The sense in which His salvation goes out to the ends of the earth is that everybody. We are all beneficiaries. Our sheer existence is a testimony to what he did when he was in this world because total damnation stood threatening at the door, total destruction. And uh, he spared that from happening. He, he prevented that from happening. He got the human race to keep going. Uh, what did we read about that, that all eyes shall see your salvation? Didn't it say something like that? You know, we're, we're looking at it. Here we all are. For better, for, you know, some of us are great, some of us not so great. But uh, this whole thing is like, no, the Lord is happy. There are people, they're, they're coming into the world, they're being born, they're living their lives in this world, they're going to heaven. Some of them are being saved. It's great. That's the sense in which he saved all. That, to my mind, is the salvation of the entire human race. We need to understand what the loss of the entire human race would look like to understand what it means. It doesn't mean that he just sort of put a rubber stamp on every single human and they all go to heaven or something like that. That's not how it works. Uh, but it does mean that he provided for their existence, gave them the option, gave them eternal life, and gave them a continuance in this world of this amazing thing that's going on. It, it's so humbling to think about the fact that we, we don't really have a clue about what's going on. And you notice it said something about if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night. Uh, it's so interesting to think about. There's, you know, there's a lot of human freedom. There's a lot of things that we can do. But there's some really basic stuff you get no choice about. Like, I, I believe in myself, we did not choose to exist. We just, here we are. 
And we woke up and said, oh, I exist. You know, didn't make that choice. We didn't choose whether to, to have the whole human race in step, all living one day at a time and nobody knowing what the future is. Someone just made that decision for us. We didn't say, well, I think, you know, birth and labor and delivery should go this way rather than that. Well, good luck. But the Lord sort of has a plan and here we are. And I'm not saying there aren't little things you can tweak or whatever, but like, sorry, that's how it works. You know, the Lord made a lot of decisions for us uh, because he's working on this big thing. So he's not going to leave the existence of the tree up to us. Just to say, well, do you want to have a tree? No, I'm not leaving that to you. <laughs> you know, it's cute, but, you know, you, you don't have the perspective to make that kind of decision. I'm going to do this tree thing. You are going to be part of it. Welcome to the human race. You'll sometimes feel separate from other people. You'll sometimes feel connected. Uh, here's what I'm doing. Hope you enjoy it. Have a nice time. So the Lord <laughs> is going to continue this human experiment indefinitely and that was his salvation so to sum this all up the lord's salvation takes two forms an ongoing saving of individual souls that respond to him but also a one-time very dramatic rescuing of the whole human race from destruction and oblivion and that is what we celebrate at easter Thank you, good friends. Shall we close with a prayer? Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for what you did for the human race. It would be so amazing to have your perspective and to see it all. So amazing. And we didn't even talk tonight about the multiplication of truth and of love, the areas of the heavens, vast areas that are uninhabited, and you have dreams yet to come to fill that space and to keep going without end. We thank you, Lord God. We are humbled before your dream and your vision. We thank you for saving us and continuing the human race. Our Father who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep repenting, friends, so we can get that second better kind of salvation. Ha, <laughs>